this. Israel, we'll talk about this, at that particular time, really was no more as, as a political group. And so what he's saying is what you've done to Israel, God's people, that's the standard that's being set. And we'll talk about why that's important. Uh, so it's important things. Well, let's get into it. Um, the very first part of the book uh, tells us a little bit about it. It's the introduction. And this is what we read the introduction. It says, this is the vision of the sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An ambassador was sent to the nations to say, get ready, everyone. Let's assemble the armies and attack Edom. The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations. You will be greatly despised. Now that's a great way to start a book, right? Interesting enough, though, this book, although addressed to Edom, was delivered to Israel. And so some of the things that we learn about this book is this. The author was this guy named Obadiah. What do we know about Obadiah? His name was Obadiah. That's what we know. Um, Obadiah was a common name. Uh, there's a lot of Obadiahs in the Old Testament. And uh, the name means servant of God. And so uh, that's what we know about him, the faithful guy. Um, the time is debated. Why? Because there's no king mentioned. Most of the, the prophets tie their message to a particular reign or a king uh, that was there. Now there's some reasons why there may not be one. Some scholars believe this happened as early as 900 years B.C., uh, because Edom and Israel had a long-standing feud, and there was a sack of Israel happening on them. Uh, but most scholars, we believe this happened uh, between 587 and 500 B.C. And you say, Aaron, why then? Well, I'll tell you, 586 B.C., you can remember that because the prefix of a phone number is 586, whatever. 586, there was uh, the, the, uh, the Babylonians came down, and they took Israel, Judah, into captivity, and they destroyed Jerusalem, and they burnt it down. A lot of the things that are being talked about in this book really talk about that. Also, when that happens, Judah had no king. So there was nobody for Obadiah to talk to, to, to say this was from the reign of this king. There wasn't any. Most likely, this book was written to the Jewish survivors of that invasion. People in captivity, people who have seen with their own eyes... Their homeland, the capital city, the temple, destroyed, burned. All the treasures carried off. Uh, their God mocked amongst the nations. People who feel that, that who, who said, we were the people of God. Now look, and their hill that they thought was impenetrable was now in a heap of ruins. And they'd be asking themselves, where is God? Is he really powerful? How about these wicked people of God? What about them? Are they going to get away with this? Historical background of this is the book really talks about it's kind of a tale between two mountains, if you will. There's Mount Zion. Mount Zion is Jerusalem. That stands for the authority and the place of God's rule. God's people lived on Mount Zion, and it was a very physical, real place, Jerusalem, that was there. And then there was this other very physical mountain, Mount Edom, that was there to the south, and it stood there as, as opposed to Mount Zion. It was the human rule, a place of great pride place where, where it was uh, definitely in opposition to Mount Zion for a long period of time. And so this book is this play between the people of God and the ways of God and the authority of God and the people of this world and the ways of this world and the authority of this world. Who's going to win? And when it was written, it was at a time when Jerusalem, Zion was in ruins and it looked like the world had won. And understand that background between Mount Zion and Mount Edom. You have to understand there's really a deeper story. It's a, it's a tale between two brothers. See, long time before that, there's this guy named Isaac. 
mean, his dad was named Abraham. And Isaac was a child of promise, and he has sons, two of them, twins. One's named Jacob, and one's named Esau. Now, Jacob was your HGTV kind of son. He decorated the house and, you know, slept with a chef and do all that kind of stuff. And Esau was your rough, tough football player kind of boy. In fact, he was even named Harry because that's what he was. And Harry was born first, and he should have got promise. But Harry despised the promise, the Bible said. He, he didn't care about being a part of the promise of God. And he didn't understand what that meant. And so when, when uh, he was growing up, uh, one time he was out hunting, and his brother Jacob said, I will tell you what, I will give you this bowl of red stew, and you can have it, but it's going to cost you your birthright. It means that I get to be at the double portion of the inheritance and be, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and he, he saw made the, the transition. Why do you call it Edom? It's true. But it doesn't matter. And so he made the change. Well, Edom means red. It also means red. And so here's this guy that changes his birthright for red stew. This tough guy. Well, what happens is later on in his life, uh, you have uh, Isaac gets old, has a hard time seeing, apparently has a hard time feeling, because uh, Jacob dresses up in a goat suit. Walks in, tricks his dad, feels all hairy, all that, gets the promise, gets the blessing. Now, Esau wasn't happy about this. He was a strong guy. And he said, I'm going to kill my brother. So Jacob flees the promised land. And he lives for many years outside. And he learns to be a shepherd and all these things. And God works on him. And he comes back. He finally returns. God changes his name to Israel. When he returns, Israel and Esau have a confrontation. And they embrace his brothers. And they say they're going to live at peace. But that's not how it works. There was a rivalry between these two brothers that lasted for, for many, many centuries. In fact, if you read in the uh, Old Testament, you're going to see this this, this uh, huge pattern lots of times. Like First uh, uh, Samuel and several instances where Saul fights Esau or Edom. King David fights Edom and Second Samuel. Joab fights Edom. First Kings. King Solomon fights First Solomon or fights Edom in First Kings. Uh, it's time and time again you see this this war that just lasts between them. You know there was a, a time when Israelites got shipped off. Uh, well, actually, they went voluntarily down into Egypt. God saved them from plague, uh, from famine, and they were down there and they grew prosperous. And then uh, the kings forgot about who they were and they oppressed God's people. And for hundreds of years they lived in slavery, and God set the people free. Uh, a leader named Moses leads them out. Uh, crosses the Red Sea, they go to Sinai, they get the, the law, all these types of things, and now they're going to go up to the Promised Land. And there is this big, there's this big nation and a fortified city on these red cliff rocks, and the city is this nation is called Edom. And Edom was not going to let Israel go into the Promised Land. It stood in its way. Of course, Israel got there. They eventually did get to the Promised Land, but ever since then, ever since they did get in there, Edom was on these rocks in the southern portion of Jerusalem. And we're, we're there, and we're constantly a, a problem. Constantly coming in and raiding, and causing wars, and sacking, and creating alliances that would fight against Israel. And Israel had to go up and fight against them. And it was just a back and forth. It was bad blood. And they should have been really good. They should have been brothers. But instead, Edom decided to, to fight against the people of God over and over and over again. In fact, there's a whole psalm that, that talks about the destruction of Israel, uh, when the Babylonians came down and destroyed the temple. And in that psalm, Psalm 137, it says this. It says, O Lord, remember the Edomites on the day, on the, 
Oh, Lord, remember the Edomites, what they did on the day that the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it, they yelled. Level it to the ground. Now, when the Bible has a psalm, and you were mentioned directly in the psalm as being on the wrong side, saying, destroy Jerusalem. They, they could tell how these two nations felt about it. And you have people in Israel who didn't forget that their neighbors watched them as they were carried off into captivity. In fact, actually, it's worse than that. And they would say, what are you doing? There was this bad blood between these two brothers. One is the child of promise, and the other one is the, wants to usurp that promise. Gave it away, and now wants to take it back. And that's where we find, really, most of history is in there, right? Because, really, we know it goes back to the Garden of Eden. When there was God, and he said, this is my kingdom, this is my world, I made everything to live under my authority and be perfect. But you can have the choice, and humanity ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and decided that we would try to take over this world for our own selves, and be our own gods, and we could do things better than God, would say. And ever since then, there has been a war between humanity and God. Thanks be to Jesus. He won that war for us in our lives. Well, Jerusalem was taken captive by Babylon in 586. So when this was penned, it was a time of great despair and destruction amongst God's people. It looked like the world of humanity had won. It looked like God had been dethroned. The mountain was destroyed. We have an outline to this, an introduction that we just read. We'll go back to it just briefly right after this. There's one other thing I want to point out. But also we have, then it talked on the outline that Edom was humble. That uh, there was a, a great amount of pride that Edom had that led them to this place where they needed to be humble. They put their, their trust in the wrong things, and that's why they treated God's people the wrong way. Then, God talks about Edom's crimes. Their pride led them to treat the people in a certain way, and he talks about their certain crimes that, Edom, that, that they had done, and this is why they would be judged. And then, the scope is widened in verses 15 and 16, where God widens it to all nations. So you know what? Not just Edom is not the only nation that opposes God. In fact, we live in a world full of nations that oppose God, and God's sovereignty is certainly there, and he will judge nations. And the last, the book ends with an amazing, amazing section on Israel's deliverance. That a, a deliverer is coming, and that is where there is hope. So the purpose of this book, as you read it, this very short book, is this. The first one is to pronounce God's judgment against Edom. And that's the most direct, and also, with that, God's judgment against all of those that oppose him and his people, and treat his people. Also, the second part of the purpose of this is to prophesy God's deliverance of Israel. There's a reason that this book was delivered to Israel, and it's recorded in Scripture. That God gave it to his people as Scripture. It's a book of hope for us. Know that God will deliver his people, and the incredible hope that that gives us. So the theme of, of Obadiah is this, deliverance. It's deliverance. And what a great thing that is. So, uh, we look back at this first, the introduction, with that historical context in mind, understanding what's happening. You can imagine the people of Israel were broken, dismayed, beat down. When it looks like God is beaten by society, what are God's people to do? When you see the temple destroyed, when you see your God mocked by enemies, when you see just violence happening to his people unchecked, you have to wonder, where is God? Is he really powerful? And we ask ourselves that question all the time. Why, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? 
Why is it that just this year alone there will be more martyrs than there were in the first full decade of the church? Why, why does that happen? Why is it that if I go to other countries, if I go to Iran, there is an American pastor who is serving a prison sentence and being, being tortured every day simply because of his faith? Why is that allowed to happen? Why is it in China that, that uh, uh, this powerful, massive government is there openly opposing the gospel, locking Christians up simply for, for believing in truth? Why is it that, that God allows media to mock him constantly? To take his name, his amazing holy name, and just throw it and drag it through the mud as though it was nothing. Why does he allow that? Why does he allow his people to be mocked in this world? To be hurt? We ask ourselves these questions. We're not the first. I'm one of the most extreme examples of the people of Obadiah's generation. Looking at the temple burning as they are marching out in chains and wondering, God, where are you? Did you lose? Did wickedness win? Is Mount Edom stronger than Mount Zion? And God came back with the last word. And he gave it to Obadiah. And he gave it to Obadiah. He begins by talking about how Edom is going to be he just put his pride in the wrong place, and he gives him five places that Edom put his pride, and God's going to knock them back down from that. Because their pride is what led them to their wickedness, and their wickedness is what led them to their destruction. And so the pride is this. The first thing he talks about, it starts with, with their very location. They took pride in where they live. It says, you have been deceived by your own pride because you live in rock fortresses. You have made your home high in the mountains. Who can reach us up here, you ask boastfully? And they did actually say that. They had these caves, these, as far as strategic location, they lived in rock walls that were cliffs. It was hard to get up there. And if invading armies would try to go up there, it was hot, and it was, they didn't know, it was all kind of windy and difficult, and they had all these big caves cut out where the armies of Edom could, could, could back in there and stay nice and cool until they could surprise attack. It was a very difficult place to siege. And they said, we have this, this mighty place. And not only that, they built fortresses. And all of those the cities, they're all walled cities, had massive fortresses around them. They loved where they lived. And they said, because of our location, we have security, and became prideful in that. But look at God's response to it. It says, even if you soar as high as the eagles, or build your nest among the stars, you see, like, God's mocking them a little bit. So you think your mountain's big? Try building as high as the eagles can fly. Or even if you build it in the stars, you think that I can't knock you down? Oh, yeah, he can. He says, I will bring you crashing down, associates. God's going to show them that the very things that they trust in, where they take their pride in, he will take them away. God is showing that he is bigger than this world. His sovereignty is bigger than their false sense of security. You cannot torture God's people and get away with it. There is no fortress that is strong enough. God's reach reaches everywhere. And he goes to the next thing that they prided themselves with. He says, thieves came down at night and robbed you. And I love this. He has to put a little parenthesis in there to talk about how excited he is about their destruction. It's like he just can't even wait. Right? Have you ever had that kind of anger where somebody did something to you and you just know they're going to get it? And you're going to tell them, you're like, I'd be like a kid or something like that. 
You're going to get it. And then I'm going to tell them this. Oh, boy, it's going to be bad for you. That's, it's like watching WWF, right? Where they just, that's that. He's like, you guys are dead. You're dead. I mean, God's getting his hands on you. You guys are dead. So if these came at night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. They wouldn't take everything. Even if a thief came in at night. And think about it. If a thief comes into your house at night, they don't take everything. They take what they want, and then they leave stuff. You're not completely ruined. It's bad. And he says, or, oh, uh, those that harvest grapes always leave behind a few before the poor. He's like, you know, look at grape harvesters. Their whole job is to take the grapes out, and they even leave some. But it's not going to be like that for you. He says, your enemies will wipe you out completely. Every nook, every cranny in Eden will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. Understand, Eden had, they had took pride in their wealth. They were built on the king's highway, named the, like it sounds. It was a, it was a road of riches. It, it connected Asia all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula, where you would have, uh, with the Red Sea, you could, you could ship that stuff between these different ports. They had mines there, with copper and iron mines. Eden was wealthy. They were, they were a central point of all kinds of wealth. And what they would do, like a lot of cities didn't have all these nice caves to hide their wealth in. So they would have storehouses built in the middle of their cities. And if the cities got attacked, you lose your wealth. And so the cities became targets. Eden was smart. They had fortresses around their cities to protect their people, but they kept large stores or portions of their wealth hidden in these caves that they would build. And so they were kind of like little fort notches, little vaults that were hidden. So the invading army came in, they might sack a city, but they would still have all kinds of wealth. They diversified. And here's the thing. God says, you take pride in your wealth. You think you're so rich, you think that your wealth is going to save you? You use your wealth to oppress my people, I will destroy you. I will take all of it. It will be searched every single nook, every cranny, every little scrub, every drop, every everything. It will be gone. And you know what happened? The Babylonians came and took everything from them. So, they lost it all. And the Nabataeans after that. Whatever was left, the Nabataeans actually started to build in their own cities. They wouldn't let the Edomites back in. Everything was taken. They took pride in the wrong place. And God said, you trust in wealth? Well, you trust in the wrong thing. Here's the next thing he says. Your allies are going to turn against you too. They will, they will help to chase you from the land. Your allies think of this. They will promise you peace while plotting to, to deceive you and destroy you. Your trusted friends will set traps for you. And you won't even know about it. Edom took a lot of pride in their allies. Why? Because they were a strong nation. They were a wealthy nation. They were a nation that was put in a great location. And so a lot of people wanted to be allies with Edom because they controlled the king's highway. Right? And they, you couldn't just take them over easy. They, had, they were fortified. It was a difficult place to take. And so they had a lot of alliances. They had a lot of people that said, in order to do trade with you and to go through it, we want to be friends. So Edom said, basically, if you attack us, you're going to have to attack, oh, let's see, Assyria, or Babylon at that point, or Egypt, which are these massive powers. They had a lot of protection. And so no one would touch Edom because they were under protection of very powerful allies. And Edom would say, we are fine. We can do whatever we want. We can treat God's people however we want. It doesn't matter because we're safe. Who's going to touch us? And God says, oh, the very people that you trust are going to be the very people who destroy you. And that happened. The Babylonians came in and destroyed them, wiped them out. And then after that, actually before that took place to weaken them, there was this little group of people called the Nabataeans. 
and they were like uh, nomads. They had set up tent cities, and they were traders uh, that would trade goods and stuff. And uh, when Edom eventually went down in Jerusalem after Jerusalem fell, the Nabataeans took over the, the fortresses, and they, they called themselves friends. And uh, they ended up taking the fortresses, and then they wouldn't let the Edomites back in. And how did they get in? They said, well, we're friends, we're trading partners. And there was one day in the late 6th century B.C. that the Nabataeans sent a delegation over to the Edomites. And it's kind of a funny story. The Edomites said, okay, bring them in, because they think these guys are just, you know, all, you know, they're just nomad traders. They're not very strong or anything like that. But they'll invite them in because we can get some, you know, we can use them. So they opened the doors, they let the Nabataeans in for dinner. Well, the, the guys that they thought were diplomats were actually soldiers. And then they took off their things and they slaughtered everybody that were important in that city. And that was one of the places that, that they, they started to lose their foothold. The Nabataeans eventually built that city of Petra, you know, that's that you know, Indiana Jones movie. That, that thing, they became pretty powerful. Their allies turned against them and, and were their doom. But they thought their allies was going to keep them safe. Plants. Now we had a different thing too. Another place that they had pride is uh, their wisdom. They said, at that time, not a single wise person would be left in the whole land of Edom, says the Lord. For on the mountains of Edom, I will destroy everyone who has understanding. And so the Nabataeans, because or the Edomites, because where they were, they had the they had the, the central schools of learning. They were on the king's highway. They were centrally located. They had a lot of wealth. They were very secure. That's a great place. For, for education, right? For higher learning and all those things. The, the, the Edomites were known for their wise individuals. And you wouldn't attack a country filled with wise strategists, right? Wise people there, it's hard to take over. And so they thought, you know what? We have, we have all the best schools. We have all the best people. We're here. We're fine. And God says, oh, even your wisdom, the wise people, I'm going to take away from you. And then the last thing that they look towards is they have a great army. They have a powerful military. Why? They had a great defensive military because of all these fortresses, but they also had a great offensive military because they had great places to run back to. They had good location. They had great roads. They had a good military. And because of their military, they felt strong and secure. And as God says, the mightiest warriors of Taman, that was their capital city. That's like a saying, you know, your strongest special forces in Washington, D.C., like your toughest guys. They're going to be terrified. They're not going to even know what to do when I bring judgment on you. It says everyone on the mountain of Eden will be cut down in the slaughter. There's going to be no survivors. You will be wiped out entirely. Now, if we look at it, we'll just we'll graph make it easy for you. See, where Eden was prideful, I think you might see that we may share some areas of pride, or at least we could be tempted to. Location. God says, I'll bring you down. Wealth. says so your, your treasuries are going to be searched out, found, and be robbed. Allies, your allies will receive you. Wisdom, your wise men destroy armies. Your mighty men will be destroyed. Now, hard not to read that and to, to look at our own selves and where we're at. I mean, we've been blessed with incredible locations as a nation and as a people. Wealth. Has there ever been a nation more wealthy than us? How about allies? We have all kinds of, of alliances with all kinds of very powerful countries. It's not as though somebody could just attack us and get away with it. If you fight us, you fight regions of people. Wisdom. We have the best schools. We do. We have the best and the brightest. People come from all over the world just to study from us. How about our armies? Has there ever been a military as powerful as ours? And we can pretty much operate with impunity wherever we go. These are not bad things. These are blessings. But we cannot become prideful and 
trust in those things for our security. That was the fall of the Edomites. They became so proudful. They thought we have all these things. We don't need God. We're good enough on our own. And God humbled them. But that pride, the pride in trusting those things, look what it does. It started with pride, but it, it goes with like a crescendo. And I think it's actually also a series of events. It starts out with this. It's just this. They just didn't care. They, they, they didn't understand Israel were actually God's people. They just treated them as common, like they're just anybody else, not their brothers, right? It says this, because of the violence you did to close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. They should have treated them differently. Israel was a unique nation. They, of all people, should have known that. Their founder, right, their, their forefather, the original forefather, Esau, knew that Jacob received the blessing. That was just the whole purpose of the feud to begin with. They knew that this country was chosen by God to do something. And they treated them as common. In fact, they resisted them because of the fall. But it wasn't just that. That led to this, this callous indifference. And this is referencing most likely back to what there went a lot of times in, in Israel history. You read first and second kings when the Edomites would go down. And they would watch Israel be attacked, and they should have defended them. Edom would sign uh, agreements with, with Israel, say, we're, we're on the same team, we'll protect you. When Israel was attacked, Edom would stand there. Their armies there ready, but not, they wouldn't do a, put a finger to help. And it says, when they were invaded, we set a loop, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to buy up Jerusalem. And you acted like one of Israel's enemies. Sometimes just seeing God's people hurt and doing nothing standing on the sidelines is just as bad as any part of it. So you were there, you were, you showed callous and non-involvement. But they went on. That callous non-involvement led to, well, led to malicious bloating. It said you should not have bloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have, uh, you should not have uh, rejected when the people of Judah were suffering and uh, misfortune. You should not have spoken angrily in that terrible day of trouble. They should have helped. But they didn't help. In fact, they saw Israel in trouble, and what did they do? They were like, good. Glad they're getting their comments. Man, that's good. Okay. You know, we didn't we weren't part of the attack, but we're kind of glad that you got attacked. That was kind of thing. They should have helped. But they were happy to see bad things happen to God's people. And didn't wouldn't step further than they started to actually heartless plundering. Once they saw bad things happen to God, people, not only really just standing from the background, now just being passive, just happy to see bad stuff happen, they started to engage in the benefits of it. They plundered God's people. They said, you should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over her destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized her wealth when they were suffering such calamity. Israel was burning and ruins, and the people of Edom sat on the back ground, right? And they watched Babylon destroy it. In fact, some texts even talk about they were there saying, burn it, right? We read it in Psalms. They're saying, destroy it. Destroy it completely. They were cheering for that. And once it was destroyed, and the Babylonians left, the Edomites came in, and they, they robbed land. They took over all the stuff. They plundered it. They, did, they should have helped. But what did they do? They just waited to see what they could get. Not only were they they just uh, heartless to go in and, and how they plundered. But the height of it was this ruthless exploitation of the people. 
They actively went out to get the people of, 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 of Judah when they were fleeing from the Babylonians. They said, you should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. Eden was on the king's highway. It was a place that should have been a place of safety. When Jerusalem was attacked and the country was attacked and the Babylonians, the Israelites were trying to escape. Some of them were trying to flee for their lives. And instead of bringing them in and taking them in as refugees, the Israelites, what did they do? They found them and they slaughtered them on the roads. So you can't come here. And a few of them, they captured and they sold them into slavery. As they became active oppressors of God's people. You see how it began seemed so benign? Start with them saying, you're not special, you're not a special group. You're not God's people, you're just like everybody else. In fact, we really don't like you. And then it started with them kind of gloating, bad things happen to God's people. And like, yeah, we kind of enjoy it when bad things happen to you. And then they started to, to, to kind of encourage bad things to happen because they could plunder the thing. And then they became actively hostile to God's people. That's the way it works. God's people over a long period of time suffered at the hands of Eden. And so God is going to bring judgment. But it's not just on Eden God shows us this. God is not just some regional God. He's not just some God with his temporary sovereignty that lasts over just a little area. Like if the Edomites came into Israel, the God would finally wake up and pound them. God says this, you know, the day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all God's doesn't matter if it's Eden, or Babylon, or Rome, or anybody. The day is coming when God will judge all God's nations. And you've done it, Israel, it says, so I will do for you. The standard that God will use, as, been, as you have done, it will be done to you. That's the standard. Your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads, just in case you missed what that means. Just as you swallow up my people on my holy mountain, so the surrounding nations will swallow up the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. You understand this. We think that world history is this big, strong thing that's going to last forever. That day coming, well, we're not going to remember Babylon or Rome or, or ISIS or the United States for that matter. A day is coming when there will be one nation, and it truly will be under God. A day is coming that, that is unlike any day. And God's sovereignty is over all time, over all people. And the standard is this. Throughout history, humans have rejected God, fought war against God, and in doing so have fought war and oppressed the people of God. For anyone who would turn and say, I want to follow God, I want to trust Him, there has been specific oppression to that. And it's not that they're fighting against us, they're fighting God. That's what Jesus said. He said, don't be surprised when the world hates you, when they mock you, when they say terrible things about you, when they kill you, when they do all these things. He said, didn't they do that to me? We live in a world that is hostile to God. We are the people of Mount Zion, and right now, to be quite honest, it looks like Zion is burning. I have you read the news recently, but it's been hard. You have ISIS is on the move, slaughtering Christians right and left. You have massive nations built upon promise, saying that, that suppress our faith. And they're growing stronger. Even in our own country, we have people that are working through courts and things like this to, 
to say, you know what, these are the way that we live, God's ways, are not going to be our ways. In fact, we're going to outlaw God's ways. You understand this right now, Zion looks like it's burning. And it's hard. But God is sovereign. How do we, as a people, follow God's command not to take vengeance? In the midst of this. If you lived in the Middle East right now, and you had your family slaughtered by ISIS, what would give you the ability to say, I forgive you? I know you're going to kill me here, take my Bible. Maybe it'll come. That's a real story, actually, in ISIS. Why they're actually what gives people the ability to pray for those persecuted? What gives those that are in the midst of prison being tortured the ability to speak in love and to pray for their captors and their tormentors? How does that happen? What allows us as people to not be just angry Christians, but to be, to be people of light and love and forgiveness? How do we bless those who curse us? How do we love those that hate us? We look to this passage and we see that the day is coming when I, the Lord, he says, will judge all that. God will do it. You can trust him. God will judge. We don't have to take vengeance. In fact, it's kind of good we don't have to. His fists are bigger than ours. We can love because we know that justice is coming. We can have hope because we know the deliver is coming. This is not, he may come back. This is a certain, more certain than the sun's going to rise. He's coming. And the standard is this. What those have done against God's people are the very things that are going to happen to us. Does it make you upset when you see God ridiculed? And you as a Christian, when you feel ridiculed by media, when they draw God's name through mud, and every time they talk about evangelical Christian, they, they talk about you like some hate monger or some idiot? Does that drive you nuts? Yeah, but those who ridicule God will be ridiculed by God. Does it make you upset when you read the news and you see Christians being slaughtered for their faith and you say the wickedness of ISIS and, and all those extremists that do such horrible, terrible things in the name of terror? Does that make you mad? Well, those that torture and persecute God's people will themselves be tortured and persecuted. You understand that, that there is a consequence to mistreating God's people. God loves his people. And you're one of God's people. That's good. You're going to be avenged. Because you're going to be avenged, you don't have to take vengeance. You can simply be thankful. Lord, I think it's, it's amazing. The day is coming. And here's what this day is going to look like. And it hasn't fully happened yet, although we've seen the first step of it happen. Jesus came, and he said he, he initiated his kingdom with pain. So we're already living in some of this, but the fulfillment of this, when it fully happens, is not there yet. But there's some good things. There's a day coming when God's going to come back, and this is what it's going to look like. So Jerusalem, that, that wonderful Mount Zion, will become a refuge to those who escape. This, this place that was destroyed as a smoking pile of ruin, Mount Zion, God's, when it looked like God had lost, that very place will become the place of refuge. And no one will come against it. It will become a place of safety. Right now, Jesus says, he sends us into the world like lambs among wolves. It is not safe to be a believer in this world. Don't fool yourself. But there's a day coming where it will be the only safe thing to be. To follow Christ. There's a day coming where our safety will be so guaranteed that those who escape, that's us, 
by God's grace through Christ, because I was once his enemy. I was once on the wrong side. But we will come to that wonderful Mount Zion. God protects us. And we will never again fear. There will never be a persecution against his people ever again. And it says the people of Israel will come to reclaim their inheritance. And Israel will be a raging fire. And look at the imagery. We've seen forest fires here, right? And look how it describes this. And Edom will be a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring anything. And those provide the enemy, not the Lord. Who are the enemies of God? Well, in this thing, they represent all the enemies of God. Right now, it feels like we're the dry stubble, doesn't it? We're being thrown into jail, we're being persecuted, being ridiculed, no matter what we do, it seems like we're just facing opposition all day long. And then God says we can't wage war back. We're not like we're not like Islam that can go out and just kill people because we're mad. Right? God says, accept it. He says, bless those who persecute you. They slap you, turn the other cheek. He says, forgive those who do wrong. We're like dry stubble. We, we don't have a weapon against the enemy. And it feels very much like the enemies of God are raising fire and they're coming across all over the world and there is no safe sanctuary. What do we do? But there's a day coming when that will be switched. And our faith, our God will not only give us safety but also security. We will be like the fire. In fact, the enemies of God will be completely wiped out. They won't even exist. But if they did, what will stubble do to fire? Just makes it bigger. So there would be no one to ever invade Zion again. There will be no one to question God's authority and his safety and security. If they did, they'd be destroyed. That day is coming. And it's awesome. It's a day of safety and security that will last forever. And more than this, it talks about this. Not only that, but it's going to be a place that's unified and prosperous. Notice all the tribes that are listed on this and the people that live there. People living in the Negev will occupy the mountains of Edom. They're close to there. They're going to expand out. They're going to take them. Those who live in the foothills of Judah will oppress the Philistines and the plains and take over their fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And you go through this and you see that time and time again, God's people, wherever they go, they get. They expand. It's not as though they just stay huddled on God's holy mountain. It's not like Mount Zion is like the safe refuge, but don't go out into that scary world. It's like go out into that scary world and take it. It's yours. From the north to the south to the east to the west, wherever they went, they would expand. It reminds us of the words of Christ. He says, He says, You will receive the Holy Spirit. And you're going to be my witnesses, telling people about me. He's really slow. Mount Zion. Dance Samaria. And you know, even today, even though we face persecution, unlike any time in history, the gospel is going like unlike any other time in history. The enemies of God cannot stop it. We are an offensive religion. There's a reason that our church says this. We exist to be disciples of Jesus, that build disciples of Jesus. We don't have to stay huddled <coughs> in this church hoping that the world doesn't come in and hurt us. We can be God's light. And shine bright in this community and show love in, a, in an aggressive way because this world definitely needs love. And we're okay with that because God is sovereign. But there's a time coming where no matter where we go, there will be no opposition to God. We will prosper. That's the pictures of when Jesus comes back and new heaven and new earth, the level of prosperity is unfold. So that we can't even picture it in our minds how incredible it will be. 
will be more than restored. So it will be this place where everybody gets together. I love that too. And that past one where it says, you see all these different people from all these regions and they all identify themselves from where they live, but now they're just part of that land. Won't it be cool eventually when it's not that I'm an American or I'm white or I'm a male or whatever, and we lock ourselves up in these things? We're part of this together. And if humanity finally will have unity, we will not have to hate each other on stupid things. But also this, this last thing says, I have, uh, those who have been rescued will go to Mount Zion and Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Egypt. And that's also, it's going to be a victorious place. We're going to rule. It's not as though we're going to go to the Mount Zion someday when God calls us home and it's going to be like we're just refugees with just the clothes on our backs. You know, like you escaped this world. You were, you know, you were all sinners. I was a sinner. It says in the Bible, all sin falls short of the glory of God. We were all his enemies. We were actually all part of Eden. We left that mountain, by the way. We escaped that mountain. And we came to Mount Zion. We came to Jesus. While they were still And it's not as though God would treat us as foreigners or outsiders. It's not even though he would treat us as though that we were just common folks. He said, we will go there to live. He calls us his own family. What? Then think about the enormous grace that those have been rescued. You and I have been rescued. Our deliverance comes. We will rule over against this and not believe. There's a time when Eden will be the smoking pile of ash and not Zion will come to fall. There's a time coming when God's people will be secure and good. There's a time coming when, when the wickedness of this world and, and, the, and the power of man will fall. And even though we are redeemed people, we will have the ability to rule in the midst of that. Isn't that awesome? But here's the thing. It's not only this, this place of, of victory we get to look forward to. We win. That's, that's the, really, if you look at the end of that, we win because God wins. And as long as we're on his side, we win which is great news, but also it's a place of holiness. In the very last verse, the most important verse, I think, in all of it, it says, the Lord himself will be king. This is not a human kingdom that we are working for. It's not some temporary little thing. People, we take power and we abuse it, but we have a God who deserves power because he is power. And when God rules from the throne, all power. He's never going to be. And it's not going to be just justice for the strong or justice for the influential. It will be justice for all. We are coming to a holy kingdom. He talks about it. We left Mount Sinai, the law, and how scary that was. Right? We leave all of those things and us trying to be good enough. Here it talks about we leave Mount Edom the mountain of our own pride, the mountain of our own little kingdom, the mountain of man's power. And we go to a much better mountain, Mount Zion. We come to Jesus. And here's how it works. We were all part of one of these mountains, these bad ones that wage war against God. We were all part of Mount Eden. And Jesus came to make a way for us. He died for us. He took the wrath of God that was ours, that we deserve. And he took it on himself, so that way we can become part of his family. 
Catholic Church, so we can welcome him to this Mount Zion. This is how he does it. And we have to, like, the people of Israel didn't understand all of this. They just knew a time was coming. Now we know that time. And we know that same Jesus who saves us, who are refugees, he's coming again. Our deliverer is on the precipice. Standing, waiting. The only reason he hasn't taken a step yet because of his mercy for this world, his broken world, because there are still some to be saved. So what do we see in this book? I think this book tells us something amazing about God. He's going to eventually be. This is what allows us to love. God is the avenger. The time is coming when I, the Lord, he says, will avenge all of God's mercy. We as Christians don't have to pick up a crusade to go out and to, to try to act God's justice, his wrath upon the nation. That's not our job. He's going to do it. So we can trust him to do it. He's more than powerful enough to do it. And that frees us to the better work. We get to be an ambassador. We get to be as agents of light and hope and peace in this world. While everyone declares war on us, we get to declare peace on them. And we can do that because we know we will be avenged. God sees our suffering, and he's not going to let it go unpaid. And some of you are ridiculed, fine. If that person is not to be saved, then they will be ridiculed. And if we face violence, fine. He'll save us. But those who, who enacted violence will themselves suffer that. How they treated Israel, that's how it's going to happen to them. We don't have to enact with them. Instead, we can just be saved. And God says that faithfulness means to forgive those that hurt us, Means to bless those that persecute us. Means to love those that can't love us back. We can do that. God will avenge His people. Next thing I think we see in this book so good is that God will deliver His people. Isn't that awesome? It's not as though that that we do all this and then we just suffer and then die and then God gets His kingdom. We get nothing. God delivers us. Right now, we are refugees climbing the smoking Mount Zion. It seems like rubble, but it's, it's the stronghold. It's the same place. He will deliver us. We need to trust in that. Don't trust in this world. It may seem strong. It may seem like it has all the position. It may seem like it has all the money. It may seem like it has all of, all of the wisdom. It may seem like it's got the biggest armies. It may seem stronger than God, but I will tell you this. A time is coming when God will prove himself to be stronger than all of it. So trust God. Our deliverer. He will deliver us. We can trust him. I think this also tells us that God won't just deliver us. He won't just snatch us away from this burning wreck of the world. It's in restore us. Everything we've lost, every humiliation that we've suffered, every pain that we've felt, God says he's using, he's building, he's going to restore. And he doesn't just restore and bring us back to Eden. I mean, he, he blesses beyond because he is amazing. God will restore the people. So when we face persecution and difficulties and hatred, and, and when those come against us, we don't have to take back what we think is ours. We can let it go, and we're going to get it back, plus some. Because God is good. This book gives us power to live the Christian life. Even though it's the shortest of the Old Testament books, I think it's one of the most encouraging, one of the most life-giving, one of the most empowering, so how do we put this in practice? Well, there's some things that we can do. If you take your connection card out, on the back side of it, you'll notice that there's some ideas. So this week I commit to some challenges that I want to give you. The first one is this. How about memorizing Obadiah 15? 
I mean, talk about a, a timely word for today. A time is coming when I, the Lord, will judge all God's nation. What a great reminder that we don't have to get thrown off our rockers every time something bad happens or it looks like God lost it. You know, a bad he didn't. Time's coming, he's going to judge all God's nation. As they've done in Israel, so how do you Maybe this has become a little bit of a hope for us because it reminds us that we can fight the right battles instead of trying to fight for justice, the wrong kind of justice, which is really his vengeance. We can trust God. So when bad things happen in England, have this verse in your heart to remind you where our hope really belongs. Maybe that's what you spend your time in this week. Just review it every day. Think about it. Think about where our hope lies. Maybe this, read over that. This is the easiest assignment I think I will ever, ever Awesome. 21 verses. You can't read 21 verses, we should talk. Right? I think if you break it up into a week, what is that? Like three or something? Verses a day, like three sentences? So, uh, read this though. Because talk about a timely, relevant message. This can be hope for you. How about this? We can pray. Why don't we pray for persecution? We know that our deliverer is coming. We also know that there are brothers and sisters who we love people who are suffering for them. We need to stand with them. Pray on their behalf. And don't just pray for their release, although we want to pray for their release. Pray for their faithfulness and their witness in the midst of suffering. Pray for, for courage and encouragement. Pray that they will trust in God in the midst of the darkness. We pray that God's light will shine bright for them. But also pray for them. You know, there's a great publication out there called Voice and Martyrs. They're online. We have their magazines here. They'll keep you up to date on what's happening. People that you can pray for. An amazing story of how God works through the persecutor. He's doing amazing things. So maybe this week, if you spend some time, get to know what's happening out there and pray. And how about this? Maybe what you need to do is more practical. Down the maybe you just need to trust in God's deliverance. You know, maybe the, the current events of the times kind of rock you a little bit. Jar you and make you angry, make you frustrated, maybe you think, like, where are you, God? Or say, you know, is it, it's just kind of hard to be a Christian. <laughs> where is God when nothing's happened? Maybe where you need to go to is remind yourself that God is trusting you. He's coming. A time is coming. He said, I can look at a real job of our Our deliverer is on the precipice. Maybe what we need to do is trust God and say, God, if you're bringing us into darkness, it's only to shine bright. If you allow wickedness to come our way, well, then there's opportunity. Look at the church that, that had the shooting in it, and look at the pointed people to Jesus. Ugly things, and yet God finds great things from it. Maybe you need to begin to trust God and look at your, your circumstances and stop asking why me, and then start asking God, how? How do I be faithful in this? How can I just trust you in this, knowing that you're doing good things? Maybe that's what we Because our deliverer is coming. He's powerful, he's sovereign, he's loving. Think of something else I didn't think of. Holy Spirit's talking to you right now. Got it down. Why one could it's helpful to get those commitments out? Because then you say, okay, I'm going to do this, and sometimes we just need that. I want to challenge you to write that down. Also, because I'll pray for you. 
If you mark any of these, I pray to you every single week that you do this. Although I'll be on vacation this week, so I'll just do a general prayer and Zach will pray for you by name. <laughs> well, we'll pray. Um, maybe with a prayer request. If you have a prayer request, write that down too. Even on vacation, I pray for you because I love you guys. But God does amazing things. He's sovereign of all, all these things. So let us know what we can pray. Let me leave Do you have another commitment to make that you should write that down too? In a couple of minutes, we'll take our offering. Once you drop this off in the offering basket, I want to make your tithes and hand your offerings to God. All right, well, please join me in prayer and this portion of service. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're coming. Thank you that you give us peace, that you give us hope in this world. Thank you that you do lose. Thank you despite the fact that it looks like uh, you might be on the losing side of things at times, that you are very victorious. In fact, all we have to do is look at Jesus on the cross. And at that moment, it looked very much as though you had, you had lost. But that was the very moment of your victory. So God, we trust you. And in a, in a painful and dark world, where it's hard to be your follower, we trust you so help us to trust you. Lord, we pray that you would help us as a church to be your light in a dark culture. Father God, I, I pray that you help us to be a people of mercy, even when we are being ridiculed and persecuted. Knowing that Jesus faced the very same thing as <coughs> Father God, help us not to become dismayed by, by the daily events, but to know that you are sovereign and hold all things in your hand, and this is part of the plan of redemption of, of your people and the restoration of your kingdom. Lord, give us faith. Help us to be faithful. Father, I pray that you would take these commitments that are being made. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us to keep them and to change us and to shape us the people that are more like you in our character and our love and our hope. As we wait with joyful anticipation for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day that will be. And Father, until then, I pray too that you accept our tithes and our offerings, our investment in your kingdom. Just another symbol for us to show you that you are the one that we depend upon. Not ourselves, not our wealth, not our place, not our power, but God in you. I pray, Father, that you would bless these gifts and these times, that you would use them, Father, to bring hope and life and your life to our community and our world. May great things be done. We ask all of these things in the wonderful name of our Savior, our Deliverer.